your plants are looking distinctly under the weather after the winter, it's time to invest in some quality lights that will actually last and look beautiful next to your collection. Soltec Solutions' range of full-spectrum photosynthetic plant lights are sleek and modern and they'll look right at home whatever your decor. Choose from Soltec Solutions' pendant lights, track lights or bulbs that fit into most standard light fixtures to get just the right setup for you. And with free US shipping and a five-year warranty, you can rest assured you'll soon be basking in the glow of a great decision. And your plants will be basking in the warm white glow of your new Soltec Solutions lights. Check out Soltec Solutions' range of lights now at soltecsolutions.com and get 15% off with the code ONTHELEDGE. That's soltechsolutions.com and enter code on the ledge for 15% off. Hello and welcome to On the Ledge Podcast. The podcast with a passion for plants. I'm your host, Jane Perone. It rhymes with Stallone. But if you can roll your R's, please feel free to zhuzh it up a bit. Fun fact, despite my Italian heritage, I am unable to roll my R's. I've been away from Perone Towers for a whole 10 days visiting my family in Canada. First time I've been over in about six years, incredibly. And those of you who have been in a similar situation as me, separated from family during the pandemic, will know this was a big milestone. I had a fabulous time, sorted out houseplants owned by both my sister and my mother. And in fact, it gave me an idea for an episode. I'm going to do an episode on how to look after houseplant gift baskets and what to do when they start to look a bit, as we say in my household, rampity. I can't promise that's an actual word, but I think you know what I mean. So that's coming up soon. If you've got a houseplant gift basket query or a disastrous gift basket that needs some care and you want some advice, please do send me some pictures and I will endeavour to include all of that in that upcoming episode. And just a quick programming note, Maya got in touch to let me know that the pouring water sound effect that I use in a lot of episodes is really uncomfortable hearing for people with misophonia, which is a sensory disorder, which means that certain sounds and stimuli are really unpleasant. It also can affect people with other auditory sensitivities, which is quite common if you happen to be a neurodivergent person. So this hadn't occurred to me. I'm really glad that Maya brought it to my attention and I'm going to stop using that sound because I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable while listening to the show. So apologies if that's been an uncomfortable experience for you and I shall make sure that that doesn't happen again. Thanks for letting me know about that, Maya. If you did 
didn't catch last week's show, episode 214, with Ashley Etikin talking about soil science, the science of houseplant substrates, I'd recommend you pause this episode, go back and listen, because it'll make much more sense if you listen to part one of my interview with Ashley first. But if you've already listened, then let's go ahead and hear part two of our chat. As I said last week, and I always say this, but I know lots of people don't, please go and look at the show notes because I link to loads of useful resources from Ashley's YouTube, which will help to enhance your knowledge of the stuff that we're talking about in this episode. And there's just so much cool information in here that I don't want you to miss. So let's get back into our chat with Ashley. Now, you mentioned mycorrhizal fungi. These are getting really popular here in the UK as a little pouch that you can buy when you're planting your rose or your fruit tree in the garden. But I'm starting to hear about these for houseplants too. But I'm wondering, they're quite expensive. Is it worth introducing extra mycorrhizal fungi? Uh, What are they doing and any tips for using them? Yeah, so um, they are big. And this is one thing I love the industry. And this may be, you know, my own nostalgia about it because one of my first research jobs actually out of university was studying soil microbiology and cultivating these microbes in the soil. And they're good, they're valuable, but there is a big uh, red flag when it comes to industry for me anyways. And that being that mycorrhizal fungi is a parasitic symbiosis. So what that means in layman's terms is it needs it specific fungi attach themselves to specific plants. And you can't just use a generic endor ectomycorrhizal fungi, throw it into a soil and, you know, pray it makes a symbiotic reaction with, you know, a syngonium, for example, because it's not going to happen because they are very specific to the plant. So if you purchase a mycorrhizal fungi product, just try to make sure that the product you're purchasing has a known symbiosis with the plants you're going to apply it to. And that's my biggest takeaway from that. If you don't have that symbiotic relationship or there's no studies showing that, you know, your syngonium or your monstera forms a relationship with this fungi, then it's not going to benefit you at all. It's just going to literally sit in your soil as a fungal spore. And then maybe one day when you decide to compost that potting soil and then use it in your garden, then it may be a benefit to maybe a tomato plant or you know, something of that nature where it can actually make a symbiosis or it's, it has a known symbiosis. And uh, I haven't, to be quite honest with um, your listeners, I haven't seen a product yet that has a species of mycorrhizal fungi, ecto or endo, that has any form of symbiosis with a tropical plant. And when I studied this, um, we were bringing in uh, bacterial, like fungal samples from Australian soils, European soils, American soils, Canadian soils, and all of them have different strains in every, you know, land mass has slightly different strains. And so unless these mycorrhizal products are claiming to be inoculating or taking their inoculants from tropical areas that a lot of houseplants come from, I would, I'm just going to stay in this, this, 
the corner that says these probably aren't going to work for house plants because I don't know anyone going into the tropics and cultivating uh, these specific species. And not to mention a lot of house plants are aeroids or they're epiphytic or they grow outside of the soil. And so the chances of them having a myco that actually even is relevant to them is likely probably pretty irrelevant. The only ones I could say may have some sort of uh, symbiotic relationship would be like a cacti or a succulent, um, something like that. Maybe I would lean more so towards having that benefit. And the other thing that I look for, for my gardeners, because I do have gardeners on my channel as well. um, I always try to point them in the direction of looking for that symbiotic relationship looking for a broad spectrum product. So there's a lot of products out there, such as like the ProMix. Uh, they say we have mycorrhizal uh, fungi in it here in Canada, and it has one strain. It's not a diversified strain. Now, given that strain that they have is relatively universal in the sense that it forms some sort of symbiosis with a broad range of classic plants that you would grow. But um you want to go for broad spectrum. So there are products out there such as Root Rescue, for example. It has 18 different species of mycorrhizal fungi, a mix of ecto and endomycorrhizal fungi species. So that's a good one to go with. There's also Mike's Myco, I believe it's called. And it has like a four-part system. Um, and that one has rhizobium bacteria it has beneficial fungi and then it also has the ecto and the endo mycorrhizal fungi and it has a minimum of four species of each in every single package and then the other thing you want to look for to just really make sure you're not getting ripped off is make sure that the cfus are listed on your product so there are a ton of products out there that aren't listing the cfus on their labeling meaning you could be getting um, all different sorts of, I mean, volumes of microbes. You could be getting next to none and just getting a whole bunch of filler. Or you could be, you know, getting the best bang for your buck, which I'd probably lean more so to the side of they don't know what the CFUs are or the CFUs are too low to actually publish in the package and no one knows what that is. So we'll just sweep it under the table. But um, Root Rescue and the Mike's Micro does list the CFUs. And so I have more confidence in those brands. And all CFU is, it's it's called colony forming units. So it's just a way of microbiologists, um, so scientists will use this too, to determine how many colonies or the total number of bacteria or fungi in a product um, or in our soil or whatever the case is. And um, you want it in the millions. So it should say something like 7.8 to the power of, you know, 10 to the power of eight. It should have 10 to the power of usually on it. You never want it to say like 1800 or something like that. It should always be to the power of. I've just got this image now of this poor fungal spore sitting there for many years in a houseplant pot and then finally being released into the compost heap and then finally ending up finding a tomato plant and going, my mission has been achieved. <laughs> and it's able to finally form a symbiotic relationship with a root. With a root. I think all of us underestimate the power of fungi in the world and the incredible things they do. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. When they're forming these symbiotic relationships, I'm presuming this is a two-way street, as in the fungus is benefiting from the plant and vice versa. What, what are they actually getting out of it? So it is forming a symbiosis and they are getting benefits. So if we're looking at ecto, and you'll see ectomycorrhizal fungi and packaging. And all that is, is that's a fungi that's laying on top of the root or in the rhizosphere is what we like to call it. And so those fungi are benefiting from the exudates that are released from the plant, which are just essentially like the plant, you know, really putting out a package of McDonald's or KFC or taco time, one of the cases to attract really specific bacteria into the area. And so the fungi are benefiting from those sugars. And uh, so that's for the ecto, for the endo, um, those ones actually tap into the root itself. So root uh, on plants looks really similar to, you know, a pantene, uh, hair commercial where you have the strand of hair that's all you know frizzled up and then they lay it down and all the, the platelets lay down beside it uh, roots are similar to that so uh, monstera roots in particular or aeroid roots in particular um, you can almost see physically the layers that are forming on it and so what endomycorrhizal fungi does is it kind of weaves its way into those little platelets and taps into the actual plant. And so the plant is using that to extend its reach for nutrients, for water, and fungi is essentially just benefiting from that transfer and from the plant's ability to um, do the cycle of water. And so it has a continual cycle of water nutrients and that sort of thing. And it's basically made up of carbon and and so it gets an extension from the roots and it grows bigger and better because of that. And it interconnects all the plants together, kind of like a hive mind. Um, so, yeah, that's that's basically the benefit there. We are terrified of the word bacteria, but not all bacteria are bad. There's lots of beneficial bacteria out there. How does this apply to houseplants? There are bacterias that have again symbiosis with specific plants so anything in the legume family is going to benefit from rhizobium bacteria um so if you have like a sensitivity plant or something using a rhizobium inoculant in the soil is hugely beneficial to that plant as well as just rhizobium bacteria in general in your soil gives you a bit of free fertilizer. So it takes nitrogen from our atmosphere, which 78% of the air you breathe in your lungs is made up of nitrogen and two gas. And this rhizobium bacteria will pull that nitrogen out of the air and pull it into the soil. And so it's free fertilizer. So if you were to inoculate with anything um, or purchase a microbe of any kind as a houseplant person, you may want to actually lean towards a rhizobium bacteria uh, before you do a, a mycorrhizal fungi, for example. And then the other one that I think a lot of houseplant people should seriously consider making even in their own home, 
it's very simple to do, is called labs or lactobacillus. And so it's really common stuff that you find in Bokashi bran. Um, it's what you usually find for compost accelerators when you purchase them. But from a houseplant perspective, if we make our own DIY labs mixture, which is just a white rice wash is basically what it comes down to. And again, I have videos on how to make this. I have blog posts on how to make this. When you water with that or when you add that to your watering regimen, you're actually introducing some of the main types of bacteria that decompose organic material and actually cycle nutrients. And so that addition of labs into an organically grown houseplant or even a synthetically grown houseplant for that matter is going to help with the nutrient release to the plant, meaning you are going to have more bioavailable nutrient for your plant and therefore your plant will not struggle to achieve um, those types of uh, nutrient as well. And then the other one that I encourage houseplant people not to be scared of or to actually encourage would be phosphate solubilizers or just solubilizing bacteria in general. And so if you're using things like glacial rock fertilizer um, or hard rock fertilizer, people will get like mineral rocks fertilizer and they'll mix it in. And uh, potting soil, actually, a uh, really good point here is potting soil is null and void when it comes to glacial material because, again, it's not a soil. It's technically a soilless medium. So we're missing a lot of things like manganese, molybdenum, uh, calcium, you name it. There's a whole bunch of micronutrients that aren't necessarily present in a potting soil but are considered one of the 17 essential nutrients for plants. And so if you're using rock dust, for example, it will have those um, available in the product. But if we don't have anything to solubilize them, which bacteria is what solubilizes these products, then it will never become bioavailable for your plants. So just introducing that sort of thing to your potting soil. And it's actually really simple to do. Um, if you just go outside and take, you know, a little pinch, even if it's just a little teaspoon of soil out of the garden and put it into your potting soil, there is tons of CFUs in that, uh, more than you could ever count. And just inoculating even just your potting soil with that bacteria is going to help with the cycling of all those different nutrients. You have to keep in mind there's 17 types of nutrients that plants absolutely must have to survive and thrive. And that means you need enormous amounts of different types of bacteria to cycle all those nutrients because every nutrient cycle has a different microbe needed. So just something to keep in mind there. My gosh, there is, I have so many questions as a result of what you just said. Okay. I'm going to start with talking about labs. So you mentioned, um, I think you mentioned Bokashi in there. Now I make Bokashi with food waste Bokashi for my garden. I'm putting, I put the fermented food waste, uh, either bury it in the ground or it goes in my compost heap. So should I be using the liquid that comes out of that, the leachate, should I be watering my houseplants with that from the sound of it? Or is that, am I? Yes. Okay. So that I haven't, why have I not been doing that? That's crazy that I've been using it on the garden, but not on my houseplants. Yeah. So if you are a Bokashi composter, absolutely use the liquid from your bucket on your houseplants. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I use it on mine. It's full of microbes. 
Likewise, why haven't I not been thinking about using rock dust? Again, because I've bought that for my vegetable garden in the past <laughs> and I haven't even thought of using it on houseplants. So now I'm feeling pretty silly. Yeah, you can. it's quite widely available here in the UK, although I think it's one of those things that you kind of have to be probably, I would say it's not that widely available in most garden centres. You probably have to go to a more specialist kind of company to get hold of it or get it mail order but it, yeah it you're that's so interesting the the rice wash you're literally talking about like what you would do w- rinsing rice before you cook it the, mm-hmm. the, yeah save that is it that that you just save that is that is that what it's involved is is there more there's got to be more to it than that <laughs> there's like a little bit more um so yeah you would save that uh water that comes off of that minus the rice And then uh, just put it into a mason jar and let it sit for about a week. And then if you have some spoiled yogurt, um, some spoiled milk, any sort of dairy product, uh, just mix that in. So for every one part like rice wash water, it's 10 parts milk. So if you have one cup lactobacillus you do 10 cups milk or dairy product and so i just recently made a batch of it and i had some expired greek yogurt in the bottom i literally put it into a blender i put 10 cups of water i blended my yogurt up and then that's what i use to inoculate um my lactobacillus mix and then you can separate that out it may come out to be you know two three mason jars and then just put it in a nice dark cool area for about two weeks and you'll end up with this really gross looking curdled milk thing on the top um and then just take a turkey baster and baste out all the liquid leaving behind all the solids and then that mixture that is it that is your lactobacillus and you can store it in the fridge for up to i mean a year is sometimes i would assume you're going to go through it much quicker than that um but you can store it in the fridge or you can use it right away or just keep it in a nice cold dark area you see it stores for about three months in a an environment like that and yeah that's it if you wanted to transfer it into like a brand to use in a bokashi bucket then you just uh, would add a cup of molasses unsulfured molasses 10 cups of water um, mix up your lactobacillus in there and then you would just spread that onto a carrier so that could be like bran or it could be uh, i've used chicken feed in the past um, you could use cornmeal like whatever you wanted and you just literally mix it up dry it out and then that's your new um, bokashi brand that you could then use to sprinkle on top of your buckets yeah Mind blown. Okay. Well, I mean, my husband's going to love having like weird mason jars full of stuff. (laughs) What are you doing? I know. I hide mine. Yeah. I hide mine. Yeah. I have mine like in a closet right now. I have like three jars lined up. More from my chat with Ashley shortly. But now let's tackle question of the week, which comes from Lisa and concerns a large weeping fig that's at least 28 years old, probably a lot older. And this plant has got so tall that it hit the ceiling and started to bend over. So things were going really well. And then it got left outside for a couple of nights about 15 months ago. It was covered up with bubble wrap and blankets and a couple of duvet covers. But unfortunately, that didn't keep the cold away and all of its leaves fell off. So this, as you can imagine, was a devastating experience for Lisa and one that perhaps some of you listening have experienced because this is what 
ficus benjamina, the weeping fig, does when it gets a little bit stressed. Even if you move it around your house, sometimes it can result in a large flurry of leaves. But you can imagine the shock that Lisa went through when that <laughs> that whole tree, this large tree, suddenly had no leaves at all. But the good news is the plant has revived and grown new leaves. Have a look at the show notes for a picture of this plant as it is. There were dead branches which Lisa cut off and she left the ones that had some life in them. But now it's looking a bit limp, a bit curled. It's got some oddly angled branches sticking out. What should Lisa do? First, I'd say don't be too hard on yourself, Lisa. This has happened to all of us. I have killed things that I have left outside too long. Ficus benjamina, like so many of our house plants, comes from tropical climes. It's got quite a wide distribution, actually, across India, New Guinea, the Philippines and over to parts of Australia. Um, Clearly, it's not going to be happy outside in the UK in the winter. You can put it outside in the summer, of course. But as I've said, it does have this tendency to drop leaves when uh, given a change of conditions. So that's something to be aware of. I mean, it's really worth going and having a look at pictures of this plant in the wild because it can actually get to about well I think about 20 maybe even 30 meters tall in the wild can you imagine that Um, and like a lot of figs this is one that starts off epiphytically growing in other trees and then kind of takes over uh, sending down rooting to the ground and then strangling the other tree There's a whole load of different species within the ficus genus that are these strangler figs. Now, in the wild, it has a number of medicinal uses and also it's used in reforestation projects in certain tropical parts of the world. As you can imagine, it's not something that people tend to grow in urban areas because, of course, those incredible roots will get everywhere. So it's a really interesting plant. I'll put a link in the show notes to a useful site called Useful Tropical Plants, which gives you more information. But let's get back to Ficus benjamina as a houseplant. What can Lisa do? I think that you've done a great job in getting this tree back to life, Lisa. I think it's all going in the right direction. It may be that in addition to the damage to the leaves, the roots also suffered in that cold spell. You don't say if you've repotted it since. I would definitely have a look at those that root system. I know it's a pain to take a big plant out of its pot, but it'll be worth having a look and just seeing what's going on. If there are clumps of dead roots, that would be better off being cut away that may be worth looking at. Aside from dealing with those roots, I think the key to reviving this plant will be and doing any changes very gradually. Now is a good time of year in spring in the northern hemisphere to do some pruning, but don't go in too hard. So from the picture, I can see there are a few branches at an odd angle. And I certainly think it might be worth removing one or two of those branches. And when you're doing that, cutting them back with a pair of secateurs or similar. Just make sure that you're cutting them so the cut is nice and clean, not flush with the trunk, but also not stick poking out. So you've got a little tiny lip on that cut and clean your secateurs beforehand. That way you are using good pruning practice. Like I said in a previous episode with pruning, I wouldn't do everything at once. I would take the most obtrusive branch off it will start to re-sprout as it gets happier the shape will probably never be quite as it was 
but you can certainly make some gradual improvements. And remember that pruning always promotes growth, as we said in the RPM episode recently. So steady as she goes, Lisa, I think your ficus benjamina will be fine. Just don't put it out in the cold again. Thanks for the question, Lisa. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. I bid a warm welcome to a clutch of new Patreon subscribers this week. Brittany and Liana became crazy plant people. Archelaus, Paula, Jessica, Rebecca, Hagen and Sarah Bean became legends. I know times are tough financially for a lot of people right now, so it means a lot that so many of you feel able to make a regular donation. But if that's not something you can do, no problem. There's the option of a one-off donation via co-fi.com or you can do lots of things that cost not a penny. Promote me on Twitter or your social media platform of choice. Leave a review for On The Ledge or tell your planty friends about the show. If you're in the market for some merch, you can also check out my merch shop, which you'll find at janeperone.com. There's t-shirts, baseball caps, tote bags and more with the On The Ledge logo. Quick update on my book, Legends of the Leaf. If you haven't been able to support the book so far, there's still time to do so. And this weekend, there's 15% off your order using code SPRINGTIME15 at Unbound. You'll find the link in the show notes. And if you're listening to this show on March the 25th, 26th or 27th, 2022, that code will be valid. Um, Just an update on the book. It's in developmental editing right now, which sounds a bit daunting, but basically means somebody who knows about writing is checking it out. There are lots more stages to go through. I don't have a publication date yet. Um, I'm very excited about the book, but it's hard for those of us who don't work in publishing to realise quite how long books take to go from a manuscript to actually being published. It's quite a long time. So I just want to kind of manage expectations about the book It's going to be a while until it's out. And as soon as I have a publication date, I will let you know. It means that the resulting book will be the highest possible quality. So if you don't know what on earth I'm going on about, well, I'm writing this book called Legends of the Leaf. It's 25 iconic houseplant species profiled in depth. This is going in depth. This is not just saying, oh, put it in direct light and that'll work. No, this is in-depth information about every aspect of the plant, culturally, historically, scientifically. Um, And I've loved writing it and I can't wait for you to read it. But we are going to have to wait a bit longer, as I've already explained. And now back to our soil legend, Ashley Essekin, for more fascinating insights into the world of houseplant substrates. Presumably, if you're going to go down the hydroponics route your approach is completely different in that you're trying to you are then trying to have very strict control on what's going on with that hydroponic substrate or or is there still a case for having um encouraging a sort of a rich microbial world no so um hydroponics semi-hydroponics this is why for semi-hydroponics people will be like oh i bought mycorrhizal fungi can i use it or they'll say, I'm using organic fertilizer with my um, semi-hydro. And the answer to that 
is always going to be no for me because you actually want sterility whenever possible. And it's not because, um, it, it comes down to the fact that there's no air introduction or there is high levels of air introduction, depending on what type of hydroponics you're doing. And so you can very quickly build up anaerobic bacteria and anaerobic bacteria without the presence of beneficial aerobic bacteria will equal root rot and it will equal problems. So again, it comes to that balance. We don't have to worry about that so much in our potting soil mixes um, because we have the pumice and the perlite and the chunky mix. So we have some areas that are maybe anaerobic. We have some areas that are, are aerobic. So there's this really nice balance between the two types of microbes, but we can't necessarily achieve that in full water systems. Unfortunately, that has to be relatively sterile. Got you. And if you do need to, I mean, what, what's your best practice if you do need to clean something up? For example, I'm thinking of my listeners are doing the uh, our sow along at the moment, sowing houseplant seeds. And obviously it's important that you in that circumstance that you have clean trays and stuff. Is hot soapy water enough or is it worth investing in some kind of horticultural um, disinfectant or something? Yeah. Um, when it comes to seeds starting, sterility is the exception. And I have to laugh because I just made a video on seed starting and I was saying like, this is the only time you will ever hear this out of my mouth, but we need to sterilize the soil. Um, so I actually, the soapy water would work. You can also do bleach if that's more accessible to you. Um, and then just make sure everything's nicely dried out. And then when it comes to actual potting soil that you're using, uh, whether it be coconut coir or peat moss, whatever the case is, I always try to encourage people to skip out in the initial stages anyways, any sort of compost additions. Um, in particular, the reason for that is if you, and it depends on your scenario, but there are... Uh, plants release chemicals and we call it allelopathic chem uh, chemicals or allelopathic tendencies. And so plants as they're dying or they're, as their foliage is dying, it will release chemicals into the system around it. And this is mother nature at its finest. It's trying to reduce potential competition of other seeds in its environment. So if we compost a tomato plant, the tomato plant leaves are going to release a chemical that's going to suppress the germination of all the other plants around it, except for tomato plant seeds, because it doesn't want competition for the light, the water, the nutrients, which makes sense. So when we're using compost and we're mixing um, compost into our potting soil mixes, there's a potential for some sort of chemical release that's going to suppress the germination of a plant seed. So if you want to use compost or you're dead set on it, I suggest use doing a germination test actually before you do the compost um, mix. And all you would do is take straight compost that you're using, put uh, 10 pea seeds in the mix and make sure at least eight or more of the pea seeds germinate. If less than eight germinate, then there's potentially a chemical release still happening there. And it means that the compost isn't aged enough or it's sensitive. But when we are dealing with tropical plants, it's really hard to say if, you know, 
what compost will not cause a suppression in germination because they're so exotic and it's such a new industry. It's really difficult to say which compost are the best. So I always aim for, especially with exotic seeds, just plain Jane, just coconut coir or just peat moss, whatever it takes um, with no other additions in it. I will wait until I bump up, which is an important process that gardeners use, but houseplant people should use as well. And it's just the bumping up from the single cells into a slightly larger container. And at that point, you can add your compost, your vera compost. Um, if you're using any sort of uh, inoculant microbe, you can dry apply that at that time and then pot up into a, a slightly larger container. And that would be the time when you would add those other organic amendments. But initially, when it comes to seed starting, just go with the absolute bare minimum. And the smaller the cell, the better when it comes to all that. That is so useful. Ashley, I have learned a ton from this chat and I'm sure my listeners have as well. My brain feels overwhelmed. I need to go and watch lots of your (laughs) videos and absorb all of this fantastic information. So I just thanks so much for joining me today. And I hope that uh, I can get you back sometime because there's loads more things to ask you about. But (laughs) I've taken up lots of your time. But thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. It's a good time. I enjoy it. Well, if your mind hasn't been blown by that interview, then I want to know why. Thanks so much to Ashley for joining me this week and check out the show notes for lots of awesome links to Ashley's stuff. That's just about it. It just remains for me to say if you're in the UK and you're into houseplants, have you signed up for The Plant Ledger, my email newsletter about houseplants for the UK scene? If you haven't, please do go and check out the show notes and sign up. The second edition came out today and it's a doozy. So go ahead and sign up for The Plant Ledger for a summary of all the latest news and views from the UK houseplant scene direct to your inbox. Right, I'm off to lie in the spring sunshine with a damp flannel on my face. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye! you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku, and Overthrown by Josh Woodward. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. <laughs>